Hey everybody, our board slash OITE podcast companion book is now available for you to follow along and take notes with our podcast review. Just click the link in the description. Hello everybody and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole and uh, we are continuing with our OITE slash our board review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Wolwan. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Regardless of your residency program year, the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Platform, developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, is right for you. Free to residents, ROC is an online learning program that covers 11 subspecialty areas with content that's been authored and curated by some of the leading names in orthopedics. And residents can access content for free at rock.aos.org. Get started today. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Um, And then what is one of the most common causes for early failure after a total knee? Yep. Early failure, think infection, infection, infection. You know, anybody that has comes in four or five months, even a year after a total knee arthroplasty, you need to have infection on your mind and you need to rule out that there is uh, there is an infection. So, you know, this is with your inflammatory markers, ESR, CRP, joint aspiration. Now, what are some what are some risk factors for periprosthetic total neoarthroplasty in, infections? And, and this is probably the same for total hips as well. Yeah, this is really, it comes down to patient selection and patient education. So your diabetics, that's why um, most surgeons have a hemoglobin A1C cutoff, usually around 7 to 7.5. We don't operate on anybody that's currently smoking. Um, If they're malnourished, then they just simply won't heal their wounds as well. Um, Increased age over 70. Autoimmune diseases, if they're on a lot of um, autoimmune regulators, then they might have a decreased response to bacteria and increased chance of an infection. If they're immunocompromised or on immunosuppressive drugs, um, you can have wound complications. I've had, for whatever reason, patients post-op from total knees that I've done like to fall in grocery stores and (laughs) dehiss their wounds. I've had it. I mean, I've only had it happen three times, but every person that's fallen and dehissed their wound, it happened in a grocery store. And I, I don't know why, but Walmart's dangerous, uh, man, you know, yeah, exactly. Publix, all that stuff. Yeah. Careful. <laughs> uh, history of an infection. So if they've had an infection in the knee before, it, especially if they're a new patient to you and their knee looks like garbage, you have to ask them if they've ever had a septic joint in that knee because it it usually is not fully eradicated. Um, it's It can be contained and dealt with by our immune systems, but you can aggravate that by putting in a total knee. Um, and then excessive anticoagulation. So if they are unable to clot off and they keep bleeding into their joint, I mean, in my mind, the only way it makes sense is we grow bacteria on blood auger. So if there's areas with pooling (laughs) of blood, it's, it's just a breeding ground for bacteria. So if you can prevent a pooling of blood in a certain area, then you're probably going to also prevent an infection. And, uh, 
So what's the difference between an early versus a late infection when it comes to prosthetic joint infection? Yeah, I think this is just like, just so you know what it is when people are, you know, people are talking about early versus late. Uh, and and um, early can be anything from weeks to months after a total knee arthroplasty. Uh, so anything actually within one year of a total knee arthroplasty is considered a surgical site infection. And late is going to be months to a year to years. Um, again, so early is going to, you're looking in kind of a week to month range and late you're looking for month to years range. And so we've mentioned this multiple times, but we might as well say it again. Uh, what is the, or what are the first steps in working up a total knee arthroplasty with, uh, with increasing pain? So first steps, obviously physical exam, uh, and then serum biomarkers and, and aspiration. It's all the stuff that you can do right now, um, which is, uh, aspirating their joint and clinic and sending it off for, uh, the standard things that we all do while we're on call in the trauma bay for, uh, septic arthritis. So you're getting your white blood cell count with a differential, uh, you're sending for crystals, you're sending for a, a gram stain and culture. Um, you can also look at IL-6, uh, is a, is a cytokine that's associated with inflammation and is sometimes used, um, tends to return the normal within two to three days. And so, uh, it's similar to like a CRP, which returns to normal faster than ESR. Uh, and then other things, which, um, we, uh, probably will get to in the future, um, but it's, uh, I'll just bring it up right now is, um, uh, synovial alpha defense and, and there's a kit that does it. I think Biomet or Zim, like Zimmer Biomet has the, the rights to that test. And so you send it off in a special kit and you, uh, get it back. Oh, here we go. We're, we're doing it right now. <laughs> I was what like, is, look at that. Perfect what transition. Is, what is alpha defense? In? <laughs> yeah. So, um. It was like you're just mentioning. So alpha defensin is actually an antimicrobial peptide that is released by the neutrophils in the joint. So just like you're mentioning in your, uh, when you're working up, you know, total neoarthropathy with pain and you're getting a synovial fluid analysis, one of the tests that you can send it for is alpha defensin, you know, because at least you think if you are, you know, in our normal, you know, non-immune suppressed patients that can, that can find an infection, you know, has some neutrophils. And so if you have an infection in the joint, there will be neutrophils in there and they will release this peptide alpha defensin uh, that you can send out. It's very sensitive and I think very, very specific for, um, or very sensitive for total joint arthroplasty and is associated, not joint, total joint arthroplasty with a periprosthetic joint infection. And it's going to be associated with infection. And so those are all the lab things. What are some radiographic signs of a periprosthetic joint infection? When we have them in the clinic, we get x-rays that day before, you know, before we get our results of our test back. So what are, what are some radiographic signs? It's, it's difficult to really determine septic versus aseptic uh, loosening uh, on just regular x-rays. And so you're going to be kind of looking for the same thing. So is there a lucency between the implant and the bone? Do you have uh, some endosteal bony erosion around the implant, um, which is uh, with the osteolysis, you're going to see endosteal scalloping, but with 
prostatic joint infection, you actually have an aggressive infection coming from the joint into the bone. So you're going to see bony erosion instead of scalloping. And then just some generalized bone resorption. You, The patient's knee probably has hurt for a while. And so because they're not putting a lot of weight on it, you can just see kind of a generalized osteopenia as well. And so um, let's say you're, you aspirated the joint, you're suspicious of a prosthetic joint infection. Um, what are some uh, radiographic studies or imaging studies that you can use to help actually diagnose prosthetic joint infection? Yeah. So, you know, these are the, like the technetium, you know, 99 scan. And we also have the white blood cell label uh, indium 111 scan. All these are, again, is kind of those um, those those scans that are uh, that are done, these uh, these nuclear imaging and the technetium 99. What that does is that detects areas of inflammation, the white blood cell labeled indium um 111 that actually detects leukocyte in periprosthetic tissues. So that's a very good test to use. You can also get a triple phase bone scan. And one other thing you can do, if you're looking at a PET scan uh, or positron emission tomography, I think, uh, yep. use fluorinated deoxyglucose PET scan. And that fluorinated deoxyglucose travels to areas of high metabolic activity. So that's what you're looking for. Because again, when you're thinking of uh, infections and joint infections, there's a lot of bacteria and we know, you know, the increase, they have increase in glucose and different things of that sort. And those are areas of increased metabolic activity because there's an active infection, something that you're trying to fight off. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Are you an orthopedic resident? then you need to know about ROCK. It's a new resident orthopedic core knowledge program developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Created for U.S. residency programs and free to residents, ROCK covers 11 subspecialties and is filled with in-depth, comprehensive content and quizzes that have been authored and vetted by some of the leading experts in orthopedics. This all-in-one curriculum will give you the foundation and knowledge you need to become a successful board-certified orthopedic surgeon. And remember, access to rock content is free to residents. Get started at rock.aos.org. Now, what is the musculoskeletal infection society definition of a periprosthetic joint infection? So this is what I briefly brought up before with the major and minor criteria. Basically, um, what you you have a prosthetic joint infection if you have one major criteria or i think it's two minor criteria or three minor criteria yeah something um, like that but uh basically the major criteria which um it's for me i they're doing great things with the msis definition and all of that stuff but some of it is a little bit where you look at it and you're like yeah clearly that's an infection. So basically, <laughs> if the wound is open to the air or the joint is open to the air, it's infected by like a draining sinus that communicates to the joint. And in my mind, any draining wound over a prosthetic joint goes to the joint itself. So if I have a wound dehiscence, it's a contaminated joint regardless. 
Um, and then two positive cultures with the same organism. So um, if you have paid attention in the OR or in clinic with very astute attendings, then I applaud you. But if you, <laughs> if you look, they will actually get uh, several cultures and send them off because one may come back as a contaminant, one may come back as positive, or one may come back as positive and one may come back as negative. And you have to determine, is this infected or not? And so if you have two separate um, aspirations that both show the same uh, bacteria, then it's a uh, major criteria as well. And then minor criteria are elevated um, uh, inflammatory markers, ESR and CRP. If you have an increased synovial white blood cell count, which is over 10,000 in the acute setting or over 3,000 in the chronic setting. If you have a positive leukocyte esterate test, if you have elevated synovial uh, neutrophil percentage, so acute is greater than 90%, chronic is greater than 80%. Or if you have a positive histologic analysis of the periprosthetic tissue. So in the OR, you get a tissue sample and they say it, if there is greater than uh, five neutrophils per high powered field, then you have a prosthetic joint infection as well. So um, a bunch of people will talk about biofilm and how it's formed and established. What, how long does it take for this bacterial biofilm to form? Yeah, so it takes around four weeks or so. That's kind of numbers I've been seeing. So around four weeks for these to be uh, formed. And what it, you know, what kind of these things are is that bacteria, their extracellular matrix, they adhere to these implant surfaces. You know, bacteria like Staph epidermis, things of that sort. Uh, and what this does is this uh, this biofilm. It defends against antibiotics. I think it makes them anywhere from like 100 to 1,000 times more uh, resistant to antibiotics, as well as a host immune system. So they've like created this little barrier where they can just continue to multiply and, you know, that, that our antibiotics aren't really going to get them. And the metals that this binds to the, the most, you know, the, this bacteria biofilm, the highest is actually going to be a titanium alloy followed by stainless steel. Uh, after that, followed by just normal pure titanium and then tantalum. So again, it's highest. Um, they're going to adhere to that titanium alloy. And the thing with these biofilms, you know, they're associated with these more chronic infections or infections that take more than four weeks, some, some, um, some sources say more than six weeks. Uh, but the thing is with those, those chronic infections, they're likely to have a biofilm present. But these early or these acute hematogenous infections are less likely to be associated with biofilm formation, which is why we may treat those a little bit differently, which we'll probably get into here in a bit. Um, but one question, is the biofilm gone when the implants are retained in a presumed uh, periprosthetic joint infection? No, implant and, and all foreign material must be removed, uh, meaning uh, screws, cement, whatever else when a biofilm is present. And, um, and even uh, for those that have washed out, um, I don't know, really any wound that's infected um, and let's say it's a prosthetic, let's say it's a, it's a total knee 
and you take the components out and you still see that kind of slimy surface on like the posterior synovium or the surrounding soft tissues, that's all biofilm too. Biofilm will form even on native tissue too. So you have to scrape or uh, curette all of that stuff off of the soft tissues as well, or else the biofilm will stay behind. Even if you think that, oh, well, I removed all the metal and cement, so everything's good. You have to get all of the soft tissue stuff out too, just because it, it bacteria just cling on to anything and it loves to stick around. And so um, let's say patient comes into clinic and they said, I, I just had a minor outpatient surgery uh, on my foot uh, a week ago, and now my knee is red hot and swollen. What's the treatment? Yeah, so for what you're kind of describing, you're thinking of the acute, maybe hematogenous early prostate joint infection uh, in these, typically with these patients, again, with these acute, you know, hematogenous infections, you can treat them with the irrigation and debridement with an exchange of the polyethylene or exchange of the modular bearing. Uh, and you can kind of keep the implant. You can at least try to keep the implant in these patients with these acute infections. Because uh, one of the things you're assuming that there's no biofilm formation, which we were just talking about a little bit earlier. And you also treat them with IV antibiotics. So that's kind of a cute thing. You take them back, you IND, you got to do a poly exchange. So you have to take it out in order to be able to wash out the back of the knee. Uh, and then antibiotics, implant retention. Now, if you had said, you know, this is a patient that had a total knee done two years ago that was doing fine. And, you know, just he's been having some knee pain over the past couple of months. And we got, you know, some elevated uh inflammatory markers like the ESR was 40 and the CRP was let's say 20 and you got an aspirate and the uh, white cell count is 4,500 or so. And so we're thinking this is infected, at least here in the United States, um, we, the typical treatment for choice of choice is going to be a two-stage exchange arthroplasty. And what this is, this is in, uh, again, like I said, two different stages. So the first stage is you go back and you remove all the implants, you irrigate and breathe out the wound very well, and you then place an antibiotic spacer, um, something in that, in that area where the old implant was. And there are different choices you could have for this spacer. It could be a static spacer that doesn't move or an articulating spacer. Um, but I think ideally, at least the ones I've seen, most people are putting in articulating spacers. Uh, but you can do a static spacer if, you, you know, if you're worried about them moving or they're having wound issues and you need the wound to heal. So that is an option. Um, so again, first stage IND implant removal, you treat with IV antibiotics anywhere six to eight weeks. Some patients may need longer. And then after you are... Uh, concerned that the infection is treated, you know, their ESR and CRP levels have normalized or not symptomatic. And we think they've been fully treated. We go back and we remove the spacer and then put in a, a new implant, you know, a new component. Um, and, you know, typically some patients go straight to some components with some type of constraint. Um, there have been reports and people just go back and put in primary implants, like a posterior stabilized knee, but personally, all the ones that I've been in have gotten some type of revision implant. And that's typically the second stage is placing some other type of implant. There are other options, uh, you know, for patients that just can't, 
get rid of the infection. They just had continued infection, infection, chronic infection that hasn't resolved. And an option for them could be an amputation or transfemoral amputation. Um, arthrodesis is another option, um, as well as implant retention, maybe in a patient that is a poor surgical candidate or they don't want surgery again. They just, they like their space and they're hanging out with that. Um, so that's the typical two-stage arthroplasty that, I mean, two-stage exchange arthroplasty that we use to treat these chronic periprosthetic joint infections. I know there's some literature, I think coming out of Europe that, you know, saying that you can get away with, you can do a, a one-stage arthroplasty as well. Um, so that's also another option, but I think the choice that we should choose or the, if we see it on our test, it's likely going to be a two-stage arthroplasty. And one other thing that you can use when you're treating these are these like antibiotic impregnant cements uh, that can be used like little cement bees where you're able to put some, some type of uh, an antibiotic in there. So you may like mix it with vancomycin and anytime you mix any cement with antibiotics, it decreases like I think the, the, it maybe increase the porosity or does something, it messes with the cement. Um, so you could put bank in there, gentamicin, tobramycin. If they have a fungal infection, you can put like for your conazole, for example. And in a long nutshell, that's the treatment <laughs> of, uh, you know, an acute periprosthetic joint infection as well as a chronic periprosthetic joint infection. And it, well, I guess last question we have here is, you know, say we have a patient, they had, they've had multiple procedures done, you know, we've had issues getting their wounds to heal, getting their skins to heal and they have these, you know, they may have these uh, wound uh, defects. Uh, what type of soft tissue flaps, you know, could be useful in a total neuroarthroplasty patient with like an anterior or medial wound issue? Yeah, so it's something that I commonly use in tumor surgery, um, but um, useful in these total knee patients as well are your gastroc flaps. And uh, you can't use soleus because soleus is too distal, but a gastroc medial or lateral uh, can be useful. Um, the medial gastroc flap is much more commonly used. Uh, and the test question that they may have is they may show you somebody with a flap on their knee and they'll ask you what is the arterial supply to the flap in use here. And that is the medial sural artery is the main blood supply to the medial gastroc flap for lateral wounds or unfortunately in my own practice, um, ones that have tried and failed a medial gastroc, well, then you try the lateral gastroc too. The problem with that <laughs> is uh, you um, risk peroneal nerve palsy. Um, and what we have been doing to help decrease that risk is we do a complete neurolysis uh, of the uh, common peroneal nerves. So release it as far proximally as we can and distally as we can. And we actually tunnel the uh, gastroc flap underneath the peroneal nerve rather than wrapping it over the top as mm -hmm. wrapping it over the top will risk a compressive nerve palsy. So if you wrap it underneath, then the nerve lays on top of it. And we haven't seen any peroneal nerve palsies because of that. So uh, that's one way to avoid it. But yeah, that is, uh, I wish that a knee revision was as easy as talking about it because they never <laughs> are. Right. So 
you're in you're in for a treat when you have to do these and as long as you do it in a methodical well thought out way then really no one can fault you for for the things you do yeah yeah man yeah that's completely true i mean i think i i think we covered a good amount of info here we covered a good amount of revision stuff you know complications knee infections i don't think there's i think there's maybe just a little bit left on knee but the main main one to tackle next will be hip yeah i think i think we're pretty good on the knee we've kind of beaten that dead horse you know <laughs> yeah i agree and it, you know for anybody listening if you think we said something wrong please uh feel free to email us and correct us at nailed it ortho uh, at gmail.com you know we try to at least put out some good accurate information here and hopefully that this is helping, um, you know, you all study for your exams. I, I certainly wish when I was an intern, like I was, <laughs> so there was something like, there might've been something like this out there, but uh, I certainly wish it was something I would have uh, listened to because it's a lot of good information here, man. I learned a lot. Yeah, I think so too. It's uh, definitely something that it, if you're, if you have a 20 minute commute or something to work, you just put this on 1.25 speed and you can get through quite a bit of stuff so um yeah i hope we're i hope we're helping you guys out there and if there's anything uh, like you said that um you want us to cover you said hey i listened to the total joint section and you missed or i wanted to hear more about this or that then also can let us know we'll add it in oh yeah that'll be good and uh and everybody uh, until next time Thank you all for listening to today's episode. Hope you all enjoyed it and learned a lot. And without further ado, go ahead and hit the subscribe button and we will see you all next time.